everybody, and welcome to Verses from the Void, your bi-monthly, well, twice-monthly foray into the world of horror poetry. I'm here today with Holly Lynn Walrath. Holly Lynn Walrath is a writer, editor, and publisher. Her poetry and short fiction has appeared in Strange Horizons, Fireside Fiction, Analog, and Flash Fiction Online. She is the author of several books of poetry, including Glimmerglass Girl, Numinos Lapidi, and The Smallest of Bones. She holds a BA in English from the University of Texas and a master's in creative writing from the University of Denver. In 2019, she launched Interstellar Flight Press, an indie sci-fi fantasy publisher dedicated to publishing underrepresented genres and voices. In Mi'kmaq, we like to say Jalasi, which means welcome, come in and sit down. So Jalasi listeners and Jalasi Holly, how are you today? I'm doing good. Awesome. So even just reading your bio, I'm like, you are a very busy person. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Jeez. <laughs> I know that in addition to like all this awesome stuff that you're doing with your writing and running a whole press, um, you're also leading a seminar or a series of seminars on queer poetics. Is that right? Yeah, I do poetry workshops through the poetry barn and the last one was the queer poetics um i also have done like feminist poetry and um science poetry and just a, a whole series they, they are very nice and keep inviting me back to teach more workshops so yeah oh that's so awesome um so that's a kind of really awesomely varied spectrum of poetry and I know that the stuff that you write and the stuff that you publish tends to be speculative so would you mind talking a little bit about how speculative poetry is woven into like feminist poetics and queer poetics and all that jazz oh yes this is one of my favorite topics Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I mean it in the case of queer poetics when I was researching the class um, I came across two books that are anthologies of queer poetry. Um, one is called We Want It All, an anthology of radical trans poetics. And then the other is Trans and Gender Queer Poetry and Poetics, um, Troubling the Line. And I, I think these are two really great books if anyone wants to read more kind of queer speculative poetry, because what I was surprised was I found a lot of the poems were speculative. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, there's something here. And I ended up making like a whole week in our class about um, queer speculative poetry and just some of like the themes that go along with that. Um, and so I think it's kind of always been surprising to me to find that in any poetry um, sort of subgenre, you will find speculative poetry. Um, it just kind of exists everywhere. And uh, while, you know, a lot of the workshops I do are not necessarily specific to speculative poetry, I always end up including some. <laughs> and, um, you know, because it is, it is my, one of my favorite, you know, things and I, it, it's just everywhere. So. Yeah, that's one of the things that I love about speculative poetry, because like in some ways it resists definition and in other ways it's just like a really expansive form of poetry. And part of the reason why I wanted to start this podcast was to actually just kind of like examine what makes 
poetry speculative and what makes horror poetry horror poetry and uh i feel like the answers are always different uh depending on the guest and that's awesome because i'm not really looking for a definition so much as an exploration and i think that i'm not overly familiar i'm not familiar with those texts that you said anyway i'll have to pick them up but um i think that you know um queer literature in general and just kind of like queer culture and subculture also partakes in some of that resisting definition or self-definition. So I think that's, that's a really interesting overlap and parallel. Do you find that with speculative fiction and with queer poetics? Yeah, I, de I definitely agree with that. Like, I think a lot of the queer poetry um, is experimental and inventing its own language for things and just like something simple I can think of is that a lot of queer poets use when they use the word woman they use an x in the m e n it's it's w o m x n um mm. and that's a really subversive interesting way that they're sort of um rethinking the words we use on a basic level and I think speculative poetry also does that with jargon and um, kind of sci-fi words and horror jar jargon um, also. So yeah, I think that's definitely true. Yeah, and I think that that's a great example too, because I think that, you know, there's also really rich and wonderful intersections with like feminist poetics in that too, and how that resists definitions or redefines. Um, yeah, so I'm already seeing how different threads. I haven't even had the joy of taking one of your workshops yet, but like yeah. how, how all these different threads come together. Yeah, and another kind of theme I've found is um, like futurism. So in feminist poetry, you get a lot of um, Afro-futurist and womanist poems. And that's also a theme in speculative poetry and in science poetry and in horror poetry. Um, so I, that's, it's interesting to think about all the different overlaps. Mm -hmm. And I guess that also ties into just the experience of the body and the body existing in the world. And that's something that I think that you tackle so wonderfully in the smallest of bones. Um, yeah, I, I'm wondering if I want to bring up that question before you read or after you read. It's up to you. Yeah. Um, okay, I actually did have a lead-up question, so there we go. Maybe I'll actually look at my notes instead of just being absorbed in the conversation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so the first poems you'll be reading are from The Smallest of Bones, and I loved the book and how intriguing it was that it wove through all those threads of science and speculation, feminism and horror through bones. Um, can you speak a little bit about how the idea of a bone-centric poetry collection came to you? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking a lot about this idea of the gender binary and how we kind of never get away from the societal constructs of gender, even when it comes to science. So a lot of um, scientists have studied bones in relationship to, you know, sex 
and sex characteristics. And that is something that ideologically has been an argument um, in kind of this gender war <laughs> that we are in at the moment. Um, and so I got sort of fascinated with this idea of how does, how do bones um, through, you know, scientific interpretation represent sex and how does that differ from gender? And then I, I got weirdly obsessed with, you know, every time they describe bones in an anatomical way, they talk about like how likely they are to break and what kinds of things might break the bones. And um, that became sort of a feminist intersection because I realized that, you know, a lot of that um, discussion was very much in the realm of like domestic abuse um, and, you know, women having quote unquote, you know, smaller, more fragile bodies and bones um, and how that can be used against us. So those things all kind of like fell together and um, in my research. That's interesting. It also, it makes me think of um, some of the, well, like obviously issues in women's health and um, the health of people who were assigned female at birth and um, how um, child rearing, um, getting pregnant, like how that impacts your bones, like people's mm-hmm. pelvises widen or something yeah. I have to get through this <laughs> process myself and like the calcium gets leached from your teeth and like um yeah. you know a lot of that stuff is kind of kept secret and I I heard someone quip once that it's because no one would give birth if they knew uh some yes. of the changes that your body goes through <laughs> that yes experience. that's one of my favorite genres of body horror is like pregnancy horror um just because it's it's pregnancy is scary. <laughs> like, and as, as a woman, when you first start to learn, like the things that happen to your body when you're pregnant, you're like, um, how did no one tell me about this? It's terrifying. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, I remember even when I started menstruating, I was just like, what? Like, this is something I'm going to go through for the rest of my life, pretty much. <laughs> like, yes. the foreseeable future. Where where did I sign up for this? I don't want this. <laughs> oh yes, and it's and also like that's so common in horror as like a problematic um, trope, you know. Like I'm thinking very much of Stephen King's Carrie. Like I remember reading Carrie, and I was like, "Is this what it, I've read Stephen King way before I should have?" By the way, <laughs> like probably every other like horror writer. Um, and I remember thinking like. Um, this is surely not how this works. And of course it wasn't, um, (laughs) you know, thank God (laughs) because yeah. uh, But yeah, it's it's a very much like a, an interesting aspect of horror, body horror. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That very specific experience of not being in control of your body and also just like how that experience gets gendered. And yeah, Mm -hmm. that's interesting to me. I think that you tackle that in a really interesting way in the collection. Um, So with that, I guess, if you want, we could start with the poem Cranium. Sure. So the the book is set up in different um, parts. And so the Cranium is one part. And then 
after the first little um, section poem, there's a series of small poems. So I'm just going to read all of them in, a, in one go. So cranium. The cranium or skull supports bony structures of the face, creating a cavity for the brain and shielding it from injury. The bones of the skull are linked together by sutures, small joints formed by bony ossification. At birth, the skull is made of 44 separate bones, which fuse together as the body develops. Anthropologists used to argue that the brain of the female sex was similar to that of an animal. Women were emotional, less rational than men. Women's brains were analogous to infants, inferior. The male of the species has skulls that are, by contrast, heavier. The bone is thicker. By analyzing the key features of the skull of a dead person, a conclusion can be drawn regarding sex, but not gender. The skull and its bones may form our facial expressions, but they cannot form who we are. If you strip me down to my bones, am I yours? There are a few places left that man has not touched. We square cities, parks, but long for wildness. Let us not assign too much power to the virgins. Buildings have ghosts, but so do trees. Where the demon's tongue is rough like a cat's, how I strain against it. I told the demon I loved you. She stood over the water and whispered a word, brought down the mountain. What is a demon anyway but a flushed girl with ocean eyes? Poured heat over my skin like bleach. There were graces I wanted to say over your body, but there was nothing left for me to pray. You say the smallest of bones is a part of the hammer in your ear. Love is a heartbreak you can hear. God doesn't interest me, only other worlds than this. If I am trapped in hell, I will miss you most. We are the tree burning afterwards. There is nothing left of us but black ash. Sea fog haunts me like memory, stealing over the bay. What is the price of water? I sink myself in the river at dawn. Your words are the stones in my pockets. Sunlight is a eulogy for the way we once were all tangled up together at night. I was the moon peeking through your window, watching you sleep, memorizing your stripped body. I wanted to eat your dreams. When I die, you say, donate my body to science so kids can pull on my nerves. Take my ashes up like paste, warmed by your skin. Rub me against your hands. The clouds are wild in the sky. I want to hold you between my teeth. What would you say to some foreplay? Loud and vibrating like the cicadas, slick around your golden boy hips. At the top of the mountain, we collapse, lungs grasping into the graves of moths. Ask me, where is your wild woman? I shot her in the face. She's wandering the valley of my ribs, skull turned inside out. We made love in the snow, layers of puffy material between us. Looking up at the dark mirror of the sky, the thing I miss most about our world is the stars. Thank you so much. It was a joy to read through these in preparation for this episode and also just to hear it again because new things occurred to me hearing you read them, which is one of my favorite parts of hearing poetry read aloud. Um, 
my questions don't really go through it sequentially, but something that struck me um, on this time around was this idea at the end of the opening. Um, the skull and its bones may form our facial expressions, but they cannot form who we are. That's so interesting to me because I think that, you know, culturally we tend to think of our bones as like the deepest part of ourselves, you know, like we say, we feel it deep in our bones. So it's interesting to encounter ideas that resist that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to that idea of gender and sexuality and sex and this idea that we can kind of be defined by our physical form, but that doesn't necessarily define who we are as a person. The, the form is not necessarily the same as the soul. And um, I think in terms of like, when I was writing this, I was sort of coming to terms with like my ideas about what it means to be a woman and also sort of feeling that that is not an appropriate enough definition <laughs> and that there's not really a gender um, definition that I feel like works for me. You know, I think a lot of, you know, genderqueer and non-binary trans people maybe feel this way, um, that there really isn't a good set of roles and maybe that's because there does not exist any <laughs> it's so social and based on even even science itself is social and based on our society and and our our norms and cultural values yeah that's really interesting that comes back to that idea again of self-definition and it's interesting to me i guess like Obviously, it's very distressing that people get upset about other people exploring that dimension of themselves. But I wonder if it's just like they can't fathom that someone has those questions. But like to me, you know, as a cis woman, just like, yes, that's just what I feel. You know, that's how I have always felt in interrogating gender. I'm like, yeah, that's me. But like, I don't understand how people can't make the leap to think that someone would be like that's not <laughs> you know <laughs> like that's an unsettled definition <laughs> yeah yeah I I I don't know I kind of wish people would be more comfortable sorting through those questions me too <laughs> like I, I think maybe it's yeah that idea that people want to have settled definitions of the self and of everybody else because it makes the world more comprehensible but the world is too wild and wonderful for that. <laughs> yes. And I think very often it's about power structures. Um, because if if we can keep, you know, if we can keep women in a place of being inferior or being weak or, um, you know, all of our, our body things have we've been taught that's the case. And, you know, not that like we are strong and our bodies do amazing, strange, wonderful things. Um, and so it's I think to me, it's very much about keeping people under the control of a power structure that, you know, is has just been passed down through years and years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people don't want all those codified structures 
upended or even pressed against slightly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they're going to have to deal with it because they're supposed to going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a lot of nature imagery in the poem, too, or the series of poems. Um, everything from clouds to the ocean and, like, the insects, like cicadas and moths. Um, what do you think is the connection there? And how does it connect to the cranium? I mean, I think I always include some kind of nature stuff in all the poems that I write. I'm sort of obsessed with nature as a, a topic and with the imagery of nature. Um, I'm not sure how it relates specifically to like the brain or our minds. Um, just that maybe the whole book has a lot of nature <laughs> stuff in it. Um, you know, and and I just I'm fascinated by the world that we live in and kind of these strange things that live in it with us. So, yeah, I think that that's interesting, you know, because it's just like the poems are talking about the body, the bones. Um, and I think that, you know, one aspect of certainly Western human fallibility is thinking of ourselves as apart from nature rather than a part of it. Um, so it's interesting that you have this kind of like, it's not exactly a tension, but maybe just like intersections of the natural and even, I guess this ties into my next question, like, like almost like supernatural because you have like God and ghosts and demons um, playing into that as well. Um does that have any particular role or intersection with the nature imagery? Is there, are you setting up a dichotomy or just kind of exploring that world a bit more? Yeah. I mean, I think I think about like, where do we go when we die and that our bones kind of live on after us and they get, you know, returned kind of to nature in some way. And I grew up, um, Baptist <laughs> and there was a lot of problematic kind of like body imagery and um, just the lack of connection to the physical world in the kind of religious realms that I grew up in and so I think I think of spirituality as like a connection to nature um, but I have sort of a questionable relationship with the God of kind of mankind. <laughs> so mm. I'm constantly processing that trauma in my work, I think. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting terrain to explore because not, not just because it has sociopolitical egos today, obviously. Um, mm. But because, like, in my experience, I, I didn't grow up with religious repression or oppression in the way a lot of folks have. Um, but it seems like it kind of problematizes one's relationship to the divine, um, either severs that connection altogether or um, just makes it a bit more difficult to sort through, like you said, processing the trauma. Um so it's interesting to me to see like some of the harmonies that are happening in the poem. 
Um, like buildings have ghosts, but so do trees. That's that like connection mm-hmm. um, to a very alive world, I think. And this idea like God doesn't interest me, only other worlds in this. If I am trapped in hell, I will miss you most. We are the tree burning afterwards. There is nothing left of us but black ash. Did you intentionally parallel those images? Was that part of the broader exploration of spirit for you? Yeah, I mean, the God doesn't interest me um, is kind of a reference to Stephen King's The Gunslinger series. Um, so that's in one of the early books. He kind of there's a line that's very similar to that, and the I tend to sort of like sneak in little references. Love that to, <laughs> to things that I love, and that and um, that I would say so. Like the Gunslinger series is a very much um, about this religious figure that the Gunslinger is chasing. Um, it's not religious to our world, but religious to. Roland's world and I think in terms of like I'm always like why why do we have to have a hell and a heaven and I I think most people think if they think about who they are they're probably going to doubt themselves and think that they'll end up on the wrong side of things in the afterlife um and I sort of have that inner struggle <laughs> as a mm. as a queer person as someone who doesn't fit like an, a standard you know gender expression um it's that's i'm always thinking about like well um well well where would i end up <laughs> and it's right. not necessarily positive so mm. Quite a thing to contend with. I don't like to do anything easy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, poetry seems like a great space to explore that, you know. <laughs> um, I'm always dealing with something like really deeply personal in my poems. And it was really hard when I first started like submitting them out. I was like, oh, man, I'm like, this is this is so personal. But then I realized that like other people have their own interpretations of it and that's okay. And I like that. And I always love hearing what other people, you know, read into something and someone will like message me and be like, Oh, I really loved this poem because of this. And I'm like, wow, that's totally different than, you know, the internal trauma problem thing I was working through, but I appreciate that it still (laughs) connects to other people, you know, like that's the, the value of poetry to me. Yeah, I experienced the same thing. I I try to bury it in very abstract things. So like sometimes yeah. it's hidden even from myself and I revisit and I'm just like, oh God. Yes. Yeah. That's what I, I mean, was going through. <laughs> truly. Like I the the other book um that I published, uh, Numinos Lapidi, that was published in Italian, but the Italian publisher reached out to me um right after my father died. And I was like, look, I'm not doing anything other than writing these, like, really messed up grief poems. <laughs> so if you want to publish those, that's fine. And, like, thankfully they were like, yes, we will publish those, you know. But, like, at the time I was like, I'm just writing these things to process. Um, and so I, I think 
it's always nice that poetry can be that universal thing where other people relate to it. Yeah, absolutely. Was that translated to English at all, or did that just stay in Italian the whole time? <laughs> um, it was in English, and then they translated to Italian, and I've been kind of shopping it around to find, you know, a publisher for the English version. So we'll see if I get it published or if I just decide to self-publish it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I would like to read it. Um, my chapbook was also um, Father Brief mm. Poetry. Um, and I, I couched it all in apocalyptic imagery um, because it was it was 2018, I think, when I wrote it. So it was just like, you know, feeling very, very end times and experiencing a personal apocalypse in the form of grief. And I think that abstracting it that way um, can be a really helpful way of sorting through it. Yeah, I... I think your collection was very prescient. <laughs> I remember reading it and being like, oh, yeah, this is very uh, now. It was just it was good. Um, yeah, I think I think I think grief in particular works really well as a metaphor, you know, and and poetry can be such a, a magical way to work through that, because I look back at those poems and I, I understand how I felt at the time, but I, I'm definitely removed from that now. And the poems are kind of a way to remember that time and just what I went through and what our my family went through. But I don't have to, like, be so close to it because it's there's a lot of speculative metaphors. Yeah. I guess in that way, it could become like a mark of survival in the same way that a, a scar on the body is or even a healed bone. I think poetry is definitely a form of survival, especially today. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely absolutely. feel that. Yeah, even just in terms of like expressing these anxieties, because I, I picked up on a lot of anxiety in The Smallest of Bones when I was reading the whole collection. And, um, you know, it's it's beautifully contended with and really striking imagery. But, yeah, there is definitely that sense of uncertainty and desire and resistance all working together at once. Mm -hmm. Would you say that that's, well, I guess like that had a very specific theme, but is that something that you try to weave into your other poetry collections you previously published? Or I think... Like Glimmer Glass Girl was very much like these are poems I would like to publish that I don't know if it will get published. So I'm going to make a chapbook and see what happens. Nice. <laughs> and it just, you know, it, it didn't feel as like sort of connected as um, this one, because this one in some ways is kind of like a long poem, um, even though each little poem is on its own page. Sometimes when I read it, I'm like, this is kind of like one long poem. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'm always kind of contending with that. I'm, I've, I'm trying to write more poems about desire and, again, the, the Baptist rearing. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> so hard to get that part of myself out on the page because there's a lot of shame associated with those things. And, you know, so I think I'm always kind of contending with that and that my work is always somehow speculative but also feminists are dealing with femininity and what we think about femininity and that's so, 
yeah sorry <laughs> that's such rich ground to explore um and i think to some extent i remember reading glimmer glass girl quite some time ago possibly when it first came out or shortly mm -hmm. after and yeah i definitely got a sense of um that kind of feminist exploration mm -hmm really interesting poetics and I think that's when I started following your career because I was like yes <laughs> <laughs> dig this poet's work <laughs> right. um okay so I guess we should move on to the next poem um so I guess I'll ask this before you you read it um a book is a tomb and words are souls amazing title <laughs> um it's noted to be after Sophia Samatar if I pronounce that correctly I'm not sure um, what is that, what is the poem responding to specifically in Samatar's poem? So the line, a book is a tomb and words are souls, comes from one of um, Sophia Samatar's works. I can't remember at the moment which one. Um, if I thought about it, I could go find it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it comes from um, her work. So I do, sometimes I'll do poems that I call after poems and so I'll take the first line comes from um, some work that I love and it might just be like a little phrase pulled from like a short story or a book and then the rest of the poem is like kind of entirely my own this is one of my favorite poetry writing prompts also is I'll tell you know my students go find a book that you really love and find a little phrase that just seems poetic and interesting and lyrical and stands out to you and use it as the title in a poem. And sometimes I'll go back and just completely change the title. <laughs> so it's not because I'm like, wait, we went to a different place here. Um, and, right. you know, but in this one, I kept it because I just thought it was beautiful. Oh, that's a great prompt. I'm going to remember to do that myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great. So you can read it whenever you're ready. Okay. A book is a tomb and words are souls. We traveled a long way to rest here. Some of us fell from the mouths of giants, others needle pricked, welled from the tongues of children. We arrange our bodies in lines for emphasis, like puppets who cry glass and black oil. We try not to think about such petty things as who goes first or last. When combined, we are the light of the world. But there are those who've forgotten our names, or perhaps they never learned. If what they say about us is true, then reading is a prayer. And faith is the monk pricking gold into the corners of our mouths, pressing us between sand and time, striving into the ghost hours of the night, whispering, remember, remember, remember. Thank you so much. I think that a lot of stuff is kind of like coalescing for me in the process of our conversation. So some of these questions might seem a little repetitive. I'm going to try to make them not. Um, but I think that there's a real like ambivalence and beauty in the ambivalence in this poem. Um, just like that sense of anxiety about being forgotten and the words being embodied, but like relegated to a fate that's dependent on being remembered. Um can you speak to writing that specific kind of anxiety or what's going on with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of this one, I was thinking about like 
what is language? <laughs> this is like a really big theme. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like what is, you know, what is language and like what is text and what does it mean? Um, and how do we come to form this, like these languages that we have? I'm not, like, I'm not good at like spoken languages. <laughs> I am very much like a page poet um, in that, you know, I don't, like, I don't do well with like learning spoken languages, but if, if something is on the page, then I can really usually sort it out. Um, and so I think there's something about text and in this in this poem I reference um, illuminated manuscripts which is kind of a nerd thing that I'm obsessed with um, you know but I'm obsessed with this idea of like why do we make text pretty you know like we make books beautiful when we print them and we want them to be beautiful and physical and um, I think that's really interesting yeah I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> no, totally. <laughs> I'm just wrapped up in that explanation. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting because I think that like, okay, I'm farming another question <laughs> for that. Um, so do you think that the digital experience then um, makes that different? I mean, obviously it's different from an illuminated manuscript, but like your own experience reading poetry digitally or on a physical page um, is that appreciably different for you? I don't think it is. I mean, I think it's it's not less valuable. And in some ways it can be more um, special because there's things you can do with like a digital poem that you can't do with a poem in a printed book. So, you know, visual poetry is an example or hypertext poetry where you use kind of, you know, internet conventions to um make poetry that can change that can only happen online um and and i i really love that also it's it's just sort of a different thing and i'm also fascinated by you know what that is and how we sort of like read quote unquote poems yeah. <laughs> um there's a lot of really great hypertext poems in um, the online magazine Strange Horizons, and um, they're they're fascinating to me. And so I think I just think it's interesting to think about like what is a text, what is a poem in that way. Yeah, it's almost like humans will make poetry out of anything. <laughs> like we find a medium ever like we're gonna put poetry. Yes. This. <laughs> yes, we're like Instagram poems. Twitter poems. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's great. Poetry it. is so fundamental to how we express ourselves. It's awesome. And I think it's totally redefined how we think about poems. Like we, and I think some people are sort of dismissive, like for example, Insta poems, um, but I'm obsessed with them. And I, I love how they like can use image in a way that hasn't been done before. And then also like use um different constraints on the text or freedoms on the text that we can't do on the page it's 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 fascinating yeah i'm actually surprised that i haven't seen more concrete or visual poetry on instagram because it seems like a perfect medium for it yeah 
it's out there. That's the carousel. Yeah. This is probably my own failing and I have to search it out. (laughs) Go Google it. No, I mean, um, (laughs) yeah, like one example is like blackout poetry. You can, you know, have that, but like now you can have it as like a video and it can access anyone who wants to read it. And so that's, that's one example. I'm kind of like fascinated by all these new, interesting experimental forms that are popping up and that we don't really have academic terminology for yet. Um, And like, for example, Mithila Review, they did an audio poem, um, which is like video images with a poem read over it. Um, And that was really cool. I was like, that's that's the future, (laughs) maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've i seen stuff like that a couple of times that was like super experimental, like the letters dissolving in the middle oh, of the yeah. video. Yeah. And it's just like, that's so cool. <laughs> I want that to be part of the future. <laughs> yes. I love that stuff. So, And that's almost like, yeah, that's almost like a postmodern version of the illuminated manuscript, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like breaking it apart <laughs> instead of coalescing it. Yeah. Um, The illuminated manuscript thing makes my other questions make total sense now because <laughs> I was like, there's that obvious spiritual component. And then um, what really struck me was the image of crying glass and black oil. So is that related to that illuminated manuscript imagery? I think it's kind of an image for text on a white page. Mm. So like black oil being text and glass being the page. I'm not sure where I got that from, but <laughs> yeah, and the, the puppets too crying it. I'm just like, yes, that's so creepy and striking <laughs> and beautiful all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I think I was thinking of the words as as text on the page as kind of a form of puppetry. Mm. That, that makes we, sense. We we make poems on the page as kind of this show and the words are like puppets that we're using to tell the story with mm-hmm. they do our bidding and then in the hands of readers if we're thinking of like reader response criticism the reader becomes the puppeteer in a way <laughs> the text because, is there yeah. the stories in their hands and what they interpret yeah that's so cool um so i guess we should move on to the final poem um an organ in its own right yes okay i'll read this an organ in its own right groping for lost time we wail we are radical women eating soap in the ditches of progress but there was so little love for us and our flesh is so very tender Conduits for cancer, it flows through us like the ocean, our hearts a deadly lure. Our ancient counterparts knew how to be indispensable. In the fall of civilizations, how we cry. These are angry tears. We are not superstitious anymore. But people keep coming. They step up to the glass and knock. The bondsmen must be paid. We take the hangman to the doctor's appointments to corroborate our pain. We turn ourselves inside out, saying, see, 
the newly found tissue is an organ. Thank you so much. So, am I correct to interpret this poem as being full of open rage? <laughs> I think I'm trying to remember like how when I wrote this and kind of what do you do you ever have like a poem that you're like I love this poem and I can't remember what I was thinking <laughs> when I wrote it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, like I the, the these prose you know, when I write a prose poem, it tends to be kind of this like sort of meditative series of images that somehow end up together, but are just very random. And um, I think that there's a little bit of my own experience here with like dealing with doctors and um, you know, being a woman and doctors never believing you and <laughs> how, like, I remember I used to take, um, a while back, I, I had a, a while back, I had a cancer scare and I used to take my husband with me to the doctor's appointments to get the doctors to like more listen to me. And this is like, there's like apparently research about this that the doctors will, you know, pay more attention to you if there's a man in the room. Um, and so I think that's probably the, the hangman reference. <laughs> you can't see me angrily shaking my head. <laughs> yeah. <I am. laughs> yeah. That is also good to know for the future. I'll bring my husband. <laughs> it's, I mean, weirdly, it works. Like, even if even if it's like, let's say, a female doctor. Um, so I think I'm always sort of processing that because... I have a lot of chronic health issues and so they end up, you know, kind of showing up in my poems and I don't know how I got there, but I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of like, it felt like gendered biological systemic anger in this, like the imagery of the bondsmen and the hangmen and the doctors. Um, and that's like juxtaposed against the radical women and ancient counterparts and just a real sense of like history and connection and exhaustion and <laughs> like we are still dealing with this kind of bullshit <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. yeah I think that's what this one is about <laughs> I think you nailed it yeah it's it's just funny like I I don't know what made me chose this one but um the line, we are radical women eating soap in the ditches of progress. It reminds me, I have another short, I have a short story out in the Other Terrors anthology from the Horror Writers Association, um, which just, just came out. And I, there's a part, so this like short story is about women living in insane, an insane asylum in the 1800s. Um, and at one point they're like, doing weird stuff with the soap because they're making soap and so they're like you know pouring lime and things in their eyes and I'm like oh yeah that's oh. that's a thing I'm coming back to again <laughs> random yeah. connections well that's interesting too right because you think of like the soap imagery is so loaded because it's you know like the domestic sphere of womanhood and also just like the idea of sanitation um, being a measure of civilization or like how we are healthful, you know, and um, 
especially in this time of like contagion, (laughs) in addition to having rights overturned, um, even though I'm in Canada, like it's worrying to see not just for the American women who I care about and American people I care about, but just like in general, it's worrisome when these movements gain so much traction. Um, You can't ever, you know, um, assume that they're not there behind the scenes if things seem progressive, right? That was so interesting to me that like even that that the ditches of progress, I guess, is what I'm getting out there is like there's marginalization even when people deem something progressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I mean, I live in Texas. This is like apocalypse land. So right. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I mean, it's there. I mean, you sort of develop like a numbness that's weird. And I think I come back to um, women's bodies and and um, reproductive rights because I have so much of my own personal baggage associated with it. And I think a lot of women probably have that. And it's deeply frustrating um, to have to keep writing about it. I would like to write about nicer things maybe one day. (laughs) It's not going to happen anytime soon. (laughs) At least not in Texas. Right. Well, we also, like we were talking about earlier, it's helpful I mean, it's helpful for me to write it, but it's also helpful for me as someone who loves poetry to see it written on the page. It just like crystallizes a feeling that I knew I had, but needed expressed to me in a different way than my own like murky, emotional, whatever. (laughs) Uh, That's like the second time someone has said that to me about my poems and I really appreciate it. (laughs) Uh, I had I was writing like a series of erasure poems um like I did an erasure of the Supreme Court ruling when it was leaked you know and someone had said like oh this is this is this captures how I felt about this but I just couldn't put it into words like I I really appreciate hearing that because I'm just over here working with the chaos we live in (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think, part of the power of poetry, right, is that it can make the incomprehensible comprehensible. I hope so. I hope that's the case. Yeah. I definitely, I don't know. It's interesting to me because I was just like, oh, yeah, this was obviously written recently. (laughs) I think I wrote it a while ago. It's not anything new. I mean, you know, it's for a while I like move. I, I lived in Maine for a while while my husband was going to school. And I remember coming back to Texas and just being like, yup, here we are again in Texas <laughs> where every day is something, you know, terrible happening. And it's frustrating because I love Texas. It's a, it's this is a beautiful, diverse state. The United States in itself is beautiful and diverse, and um, that gets dismissed among all of the sort of social ills and problems that our elected representatives refuse to deal with. Um, but Texas is a beautiful place, and it's there's I've met so many amazing speculative writers and horror writers in this state, and so I I kind of 
it's a weird juxtaposition of like living in a place that you love, but also that doesn't love you. Yeah, I think a lot of people um, have experience with that than they let on or even maybe necessarily think about. I mean, obviously, I think people who have experienced marginalization in some way or another might experience that, you know, like as an Indigenous woman and like, yeah, <laughs> mm. that's that's how it is. <laughs> um, and I think if people haven't experienced that, that it's really really helpful to consider that a lot of people are living under those conditions in many different permutations and I guess to not let individual realities get lost in the mix you know because like I think that people think of politics as an abstraction instead of just like something that's very consequential for individuals <laughs> mm -hmm. and that people comprise systems and people comprise those affected by systems. Well, I think that, I think you have hit on a really important thing in that we need to see the individual because even I think among um, marginalized people, there's a sense of, I haven't experienced what you've experienced, so I can't relate to it. And, mm -hmm. but the reality is that this is this is the value of art is that allows us to have empathy and relate to things that we are not necessarily experienced ourselves and and we can find commonality if not a universal experience absolutely i think that's actually a really nice note to wrap up on okay <laughs> was there anything else that you wanted to put forward about those poems or anything you wanted to let the listeners know about no, I think that, um, I think we covered most of it. You can get the smallest of bones on the Clash Books website or on Amazon. Um, and I have a couple other poems coming out later this year, but they are um, going to be uplinked on my website. So, you know, just check that out. And um, yeah. Awesome. And of course, Other Terrors which you just yes. reminded me that I meant to pick up. So yes. <laughs> I, think it, I think it has some poems in it. I haven't, I don't have a poem in it. I have a short story in it, but it's excellent. Oh, I'm excited to read it. The cover art's beautiful and the lineup is killer. And we're just like, yes. <laughs> yes. I'm excited. It's, it's good. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next time.